0: Scadia and the edge of the world, UFOnet presents Night Drift with Jim Perry.
1: From the hinterlands concealed by fog at the intersection of society and strange, this is an interview series about the unknown and our relationship to it. Produced by the documentary series Euphemet, here we commune and wander through the big wonder with guests who are thinkers, explorers, experiencers of the phenomena that is on the edge of it all. This is Night Drift, and I'm Jim Perry. Tonight guest, Dr. Paul Smith, discusses the history of remote viewing and how he was recruited into a military unit at Fort Meade, Maryland, where they developed remote viewing for intelligence purposes. We'll jump right into that conversation in just a minute. But... Listen tonight. It's just me and the dogs here in the coast, and they are unchaperoned. As the girls out of town at a conference, so we'll expect barks in the background as soon as their kongs filled with peanut butter are gone. So apologies to you listening to this. Apologies to Paul. I'm gonna just try to keep my cool and carry on.
2: (laughs) You know, people have always said I'm I'm all for the dogs anyway. So yeah. (laughs) <laughs> there you go. And that's Paul. Uh, so you know, you can weigh in on
1: this conversation tonight. You can email me, jim at youfamat.com, and use hashtag nightdrift on Twitter. You can also send me a voice message. Go to say or find the link in the show notes. Now, Dr. Paul H. Smith is the longest-serving controlled remote viewing CRV teacher active today. Having begun his career as an instructor in 1984, he served for seven years in the government's Stargate remote viewing program at Fort Meade, Maryland. Starting 1984, he became one of the only five Stargate personnel to be personally trained as remote viewers by the legendary founders of remote viewing. That's Ingo Swann and Dr. Hal Puthoff from SRI International. Dr. Paul H. Smith was the primary author of the Government RV Program's CRV Training Manual and served as theory instructor for new CRV trainee personnel, as well as source recruiting officer, unit security officer, and unit historian. What did he not do in this unit is what I'm wondering. He is credited with over a thousand training and operational remote viewing sessions during his time with Stargate. Currently, Dr. Paul H. Smith continues to teach classes in remote viewing and is the author of Reading the Enemy's Mind and the Essential Guide to Remote Viewing. Paul, welcome to Night Drift.
2: Thank you. So what I didn't do is the dishes, but that's because we didn't have any. (laughs) I was waiting for that part of the
1: biography there. Man, oh man, kept you busy. You uh, You know, I'm curious about, a lot of people have covered... This story and they've covered Stargate a lot of people listening to my program have probably read that manual online And maybe it's that the one that you authored I'm not quite sure but I'm really interested in getting to the heart of how it felt to be in that program at that time And what that introduction was for you. So I guess first of all, do you remember? Where you were and what you were doing when you were recruited into the Stargate program.
2: Oh, yes That is emblazoned on my memory I was uh, actually assigned to an Army Army Human Intelligence uh, organization called Army Ops Group. Um, And I was a Mideast desk analyst. In fact, uh, at the time, I was probably doing a compilation of all Iranian uh, names of of various officials and uh, Mm. folks in the government from open source uh, material. Mm and you know that was pretty tedious it was very much a bookkeeping job even though it did fit into my background in middle eastern studies and all that um and i had unbeknownst to me uh well i know so i had moved in to army corps it was a row of townhouses and right next door was skip atwater we called him fred back then Hmm. um he was uh I did not know it, but he was the operations and training officer for the remote viewing unit. And in fact, the Army officer that had actually founded the Army's program
3: mm-hmm. uh,
2: under direction from uh, from General Thompson, Ed Thompson, hmm. um, and across the street from Tom McNair. Now, that was not unusual that we have these, you know, I'm living amongst a bunch of Army captains, except these Army captains had Captain McNair and Captain Atwater on the door, on the door. <laughs> but uh, Tom had a full beard. And neither one of them ever wore any uniform. <laughs> <laughs> <And> so, <clears throat> I, you know, I figured they were human intelligence guys too, but they must have been in a different organization than me or I'd have known what they did, right? Right. Yeah. So I'm there and we got to be pretty good friends, but I had no idea what they did. In fact, one time uh, I asked them, well, what do you guys do? And we they say, well, we can't tell you. And I said, well, I yeah, I, I don't want specifics. Um, all, all I want to know is, what particular discipline are you in? Signals intelligence, human intelligence, imagery intelligence, uh, measurement and signatures intelligence. You know, and, and and they said, well, none of those. <laughs> and I go, what? There isn't anything else. <laughs> you know, you've got to be in one of them. Well, no. <clears throat> I said, well, trying to figure it out. I said, uh, okay. So, um, well, do you do a lot of traveling in this job? And uh, they kind of looked around a little bit, and then Tom says, Well, sort of. <laughs> I mean, what do you mean, sort of? Right. Now, of course, I found out later it meant that physically he didn't go anywhere, but his, uh, of course, his consciousness did, you know. So wow. it was, uh, it, once I found out what it was, it was almost like a practical joke, you know, what you guys, <laughs> what were you trying to pull, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember that moment in particular when it, it finally dropped? and and
2: what was that like so what happened was um they were looking actually to recruit some folks for um for a training program they'd gotten a contract with sri international which is where this was done used to be stanford research institute but it got spun off from the university and became sri international Mm
3: -hmm.
2: um they got a contract the army had led a contract with sri to train up some more remote viewers they had three training slots and they were beating the bushes trying to find somebody who they felt like might do a good job in that. And you can't exactly put out a job announcement, you know, saying we need, right. we need some remote viewers. Yeah. Um, so they were basically, you know, taking out their pool acquaintances and and if somebody referred them to somebody, check them out. And here I am, I moved right in next door to them. And so here's what they were looking for. They were looking for an army office, army officers, intelligence officers that were, uh, had done well in their job of course most intelligence officers do right get good report cards and all that um and then and went gone through all it you know punched all the tickets gone through all the wickets you had to to be you know satisfy your career requirements and i'd done all the courses and, and had the tactical assignment in germany and all that but they were looking for just a couple of other criteria so one and that had to do with maybe you ha- you have a bit more right brain than your usual army hmm. officer is, right? And um so in other words, for somebody who might be uh involved in some kind of artistic pursuit, such as studio art, maybe they paint or draw or something. Yeah. Uh in music or whatever, you know, they play put they they, they music play a musical instrument or whatever. Um foreign languages although that's not quite as rare in the intelligence world obviously Hmm. and things like that right so um they got to know me and discovered I had majored in art when I was at Brigham Young University illustrated textbooks and Hmm. and and field manuals and things and uh and I uh, had been playing guitar for about 20 years by then and uh, I was fluent in German and competent in Arabic and Hebrew and I also like to write short stories and send them off and get them rejected. So
1: <laughs> ah, the time outered pastime.
2: Yes. So <laughs> I mean, I I they didn't hadn't met anybody who's quite as right-brained as I was at that point. <laughs> right. And so they said, Well, we can't not try this guy out. So, you know, I didn't know all this was going on behind the scenes. Um, one day I get a knock on the door and Tom and Skipper standing. They said, you know, we'd like we think you might be good at what we do. And I said, well, what do you do? And they said, you know, we can't tell you that. <laughs> I, go, I go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that, but I'm hoping to catch you off guard. No, I didn't actually say that. Um, they said, but what we'd like to do is is do an assessment on you, and if you score, or we're going to give you some psychology and personality profile tests, and if you score where we think you will, then uh, we'll read you on the program, and you'll have you'll be able to decide whether you want to volunteer or not, Okay. And so apparently I scored where they wanted me to. They they got my uh, the test scores back and said, OK, come on over at such and such time to our building um, and we'll reach on. So and I you must have there. been
1: at this point in time going like, I'm finally going to find out what these guys have been up to this entire time, right?
2: Yeah, I guess I was a little bit of that, true yeah. enough. But I wasn't horribly excited about it i mean i figured oh it's going to turn out to be another bookkeeping job (laughs) right (laughs) but you know i sort of had this intuition that there might be something more to it which is why i was willing to go along with this right yeah and um so i go over the buildings and um they're just across the meadow actually from our housing area um i have to paint a picture of these buildings i mean they were built in world war ii as temporary buildings Mm. to house a one was the mess hall and one's the company day room for a and some kind of a logistics company training company hmm. for troops serving in the war you know in europe and, and they hadn't been painted in like decades so the paint was flaking off the sides or one story that uh, that had steel screens over the windows uh, steel mesh bars over the windows the porch if you walked up on it was creaky you know it was made out of wood the the door was all flaking off and and so I go up and I knock on the door, and and the secretary Jeannie Betters, comes and opens the door, and she gives me this kind of look. Oh, you're the new guy, kind of a look, you know. <laughs> and but she didn't say anything except go on back. Tom's waiting for you in the back. So I go in the back. And there's Tom in his blue jeans, his open collar shirt, his beard, you know. And um, I shake hands. I sit down. And he says, uh, "So I said, okay. Well, here I am." He said, "Okay. Well, here's a non-disclosure statement you have to sign." And you don't call that a that's what you would call it in civilian life is really a read on yeah. statement, right? But so I read the thing, and it's it's I was read on for top secret, uh, special compartment intelligence and a couple of caveats beyond that, uh, the TK and some other things. And and, and you know, that's about as secret as it gets. People know more about that stuff uh, thanks to Donald Trump's ex escapades and document acquisition, right? Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I was read on to all that stuff, and so consequently. I was not unfamiliar with this, but this read-on statement was way more draconian than anything I'd signed up to that point. It included a a clause that I couldn't tell anybody who didn't already know that I was in the Army. Um, It it had a bunch of things I couldn't do and stuff that I used to be able to do. So I I said, okay, well, I'll sign it. Because the condition of signing it was those things only went into effect if I agreed to accept the assignment right oh I see so I sign it because I wasn't out of anything it was too it was too bad a job I just wouldn't you know do yeah. it and uh, then Tom reads me on he's this is like, I call it my men in black moment this is like uh, Tommy Lee Jones has will Smith you know in the men in black <laughs> sure. program. He, he's he's reading will Smith on he says you're gonna have to have your fingerprints erased. you're gonna have several human contact with anybody you know or whatever and you know I don't even remember the details but they're very you know very strict right they yeah. kind of felt that way. Um, And Tom says, uh, we collect intelligence against foreign threats using a parapsychology discipline called remote viewing. Uh, We essentially want to invite you to volunteer to become a psychic spy. Okay. And the one that was surprised by this wasn't me. It was Tom. And I'll tell you why. So as I was growing up, I loved science fiction. I read every science fiction book I could find. Um, Particularly like the ones that involved ESP, you know, extrasensory perception, psychic skills, that kind of thing. Andre Norton, you know, with her psychic animals and and, uh, Zena Henderson, uh, her pilgrimage books. Um, I love those things. And then in junior high, I had a chance to participate in a science fair project. And it totally tanked. I had no success at all, nor did anyone else in the science fair project. And so at that point, I became mildly skeptical. I said, oh, well, it's fun to read about, but I guess there's really not anything to it. Sure. And so here I am sitting in front of this guy with a beard, army captain with a beard. And he's telling me that there's a line item in the federal budget that is paying to have people trained to become psychic spies. I'm thinking... That's very obvious there's got to be something to this. There wouldn't be a line item in the budget if there wasn't something to it. There's no way I'm not going to do this. Yeah. And so Tom reads me on. And the next thing he says is, don't worry, you have 24 hours to think it over. And these are the things you can tell your, your your spouse so that she at least has some idea uh, that things could change in, in your military career. I said, no, I don't need that. I want to do it, <laughs> and he got this kind of surprised look on his face because nobody had said that before, right? Yeah, they would all you know puzzled for for a day and come back in and said, "Well, I guess I'll try it," you know. And I'm just I I can't, you know. I'm about to jump out of my seat saying, "This is way better than compiling a list of Iranian names." <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> well, awesome. Let's let's hold it there until after this next break because. I feel like we have now sufficiently gone down the rabbit hole with you. And we're there and it is 1984, right? Is it 83 or 84? This was
2: August of 1983.
1: All right. We're in August of 1983. And we're about to see what this program is all about with with Paul. Um, We have to take a quick break here on Night Drift. We'll be right back after this.
0: Drift with Jim Perry on Alternative Talk, 1150 AM, KKNW, Seattle. Now, here again is Jim.
1: This is Night Drift. I'm Jim Perry. We've introduced a new perk for UFAMet patrons, an ad-free UFAMet podcast feed. And you can use it wherever you listen to podcasts. Go to UFAMet.com and click the top banner to become a patron today. Unlock ad-free shows and access to the occasional hangout. And we're going to do one soon. So, Thank you to those that have subscribed. And thank you for listening tonight. It's already an incredible program. Our guest is one of the world's leading remote viewers, Dr. Paul H. Smith. He teaches classes in remote viewing and is the author of Reading the Enemy's Mind and the Essential Guide to Remote Viewing. And as I understand, Paul, you have an event coming up very soon.
2: Yes, and uh, I'm very excited about it. Um, we're calling it the Cedar Mount Remote Viewing Summit. Uh, so I'm, I'm out here in a little town called Cedar City about 40,000 people uh, at the foot of the Rocky Mountains in close proximity to seven major national parks. It's a wonderful place to be. And I decided I wanted to share that with, with my remote viewing friends and, and acquaintances and neighbors and people I've not met before that are into remote viewing. Uh, it's a it's a fairly uh, high-end event. It's actually quite high-end event because I'm bringing in top-notch people uh, in the field of consciousness and remote viewing to talk about it, uh, to give presentations and workshops. And we're going to be up at the, at a mountain lodge up in the pine and the aspen. And it's, it's just gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. And uh, yeah, so that, that's going to be at the end of this month. I've got folks like Jeffrey Mishlove, who's going to come and talk on hyperspace and consciousness. And, uh, and Jessica Utz, who is the only defender of remote viewing in the notorious CIA Uh, report that allegedly showed uh, remote viewing uh, wasn't real and she proceeded to show it was Hmm. Um, and uh, Tom McNair, Bill Ray, some of the uh, most prominent people in the military program uh, at various times it's just going to be great we're going to talk about uh, extraterrestrials and consciousness and whether we're a threat to them or they're a threat to us we're going to do a couple of remote viewing experiments, and uh, and anyway, I, I won't go at, on a link because I won't, don't want to put people to sleep. But you can find out about this at uh, at uh, of course HTTPS, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, uh, remote Viewing So Remote Viewing Summit; those three words run together com.
1: Well, congrats on snagging that URL first of all, because that's yes, a real clear, good one, and also that sounds absolutely so much fun and uh we'll keep in touch because i can't wait to come out to one of these myself that yeah. sounds so great i mean if you're gonna you know kind of get deep and participate in these things why not be in a beautiful location that's what absolutely.
2: i'm thinking it is stunning where are you jim where, i'm where are you? based
1: on the oregon coast i split time between the oregon coast and seattle
2: okay yeah. i was born in oregon oh is that right whereabouts Le Grand over on the Eastern side.
1: Oh, it's great. That's great country over there. Spent a week over there. Uh, just, uh, just a few months ago. Hmm. Uh, let's go back to 1983, if you don't mind, Paul. Sure. Um, I'm so fascinated by your introduction into this program as, uh, someone coming from a military background and now found yourself in something that was, I don't know, seemingly to me, I would feel like, oh my God, this is unreal. What, what have i what have i got myself into and this is so cool i mean is that
2: what was that some of your response at the time did you feel like i thought i had died and gone to heaven <laughs> <laughs> no i thought it was way cool of course you know i earlier i told you how i felt about the whole esp domain and i was i just thought how could this ever happen in fact that's still a thing that catches my that i think about i think you know, talk about being in the right place at the right time with the right preparation. Yeah, I mean, it's like fate or God or something you know, a, a higher order of magnitude than we are had a role in that. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how I don't know how else I could have stumbled into that. It was just, it was a, in a way that was the most miraculous thing of, of the whole deal, right? Yeah, um, but of course, I was a little bit nervous because what if I can't do it? Will they fire me just as soon as they've hired me? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, I found out later that it takes a while before you know whether you can actually do it very well or not. Um, yeah. But um, but frankly, it is something you teach. And if you're willing to learn, then usually it works out. You know, mm-hmm. I've run into folks who who couldn't let go of their preconceived notions about what it meant to be psychic. In fact, I've run into a lot of those. They just have this idea of what it is to be psychic, and they stick with that. You have to kind of forget the stuff you think you know in mm. order to be successful at remote viewing. Um, now, some principles will will come across, of course, but but generally speaking, the if you if you think there, there's a line in one of the Dune books. Uh, let me see if I can remember it. Um, thinking you know something is the. Is, I'm paraphrasing. I don't know exact phrasing, but thinking you know something is the. The best way to guarantee you that you won't learn anything—that's <laughs> <laughs> nothing like that.
1: Yeah. Uh, I love that homespun wisdom from Dune. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, at the time when you were beginning to learn this, who were your teachers, and can you describe that relationship a little bit?
2: My primary teachers—I'll say—as uh, a as a side teacher was was Skip Atwater. He he gave some preliminary training which consists more in putting us in situations where we had to remote view to get anything at all. Um, But then the real core training uh, was done primarily by Ingo Swan and uh, with assistance from uh, Hal Putoff and some of the other folks at SRI. Uh, We went out to Menlo Park in early January of 84, spent two weeks out there, and that's where we got our first introduction and did our first remote viewing sessions. And... um, and it was a great setting for that. I mean, Menlo Park's a beautiful place. You know, yeah. it, it, as far as urban areas go, it was very, very beautiful. Sure. And uh, so we went out to SRI and we worked out there. And then we more, we spent most of our training time up in Midtown Manhattan. At SRI I had some offices up there. That was Ingo's hometown, so uh, we could go anywhere if he was working out there. They saved the contract money, and plus he he hated to be in California all that time, so. <laughs> So we would meet him uptown, but I think it was about 60th or 61st or 66. I don't remember where, but it was a big uh, SRI building at the time. I doubt it's there anymore. Yeah. Uh, and we did our training there and um, yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. I mean, we did work pretty hard at this, but there was a lot of downtime as well. And every once in a while, Ingo would get bored with all the in-class training stuff. And he'd say, it's time for a training film, right? So we'd go to, like we we went to the first run Ghostbusters in the New York theater, right? And coming out of the theater, we all bought Ghostbuster t shirts. I think I don't know if I still have mine around somewhere. It doesn't fit me anymore. I'm sure. Um, we did. who uh, else? We watched Firestarter. We watched um, uh, Brainstorm. You know, it, it had to have some kind of a, relevantly paranormal kind of a theme for it to yeah. count but uh but he billed the taxpayers for that training those training opportunities so.
1: <laughs> well I love it and uh listen obviously Ingo meant a lot to you uh, if I'm not giving away too much here in the in the background of your video right now is a portrait of Ingo and and what I think are maybe Ingo paintings is that is that correct are those ingo paintings Actually, right those there?
2: are my paintings
1: oh those are your paintings
2: they're great but I owe them to Ingo hmm Because, you know, for years when I was majoring in art and and doing artwork on the side, I mean, I liked a lot of different things. In fact, I liked landscape watercolor, but there was one genre that I didn't have a name for. It was, I I liked uh, uh, surrealism, Mm -hmm. but I didn't like it all that well because I didn't like the nightmare quality in it, right? Mm But I knew there was something real about that, something that really, well, see, it's weird to say something real about surreal, but, um, right. oh, I but get it. Th- there was something that was compelling about it. And I didn't know quite what it was. And then when we went to uh, Ingo's house for the first time, he lived, he actually owned this uh, one, two, three, five, five stories up and two basements, three basements, no, two basements down. Uh, there's an old wire factory on the, in the Bowery there in New York. Um and we went to his place the first time. His studio was in the basement. He took us down, turned off all the lights, took us down, turned on, uh, at that time, a very new artist, a guy named Kataro, which you may be familiar with him, a Silk Road suite, which is what put Kataro on the map because uh, that was a the theme the theme music for a PBS uh, production about the Silk Road, a documentary mm. about the Silk Road you know, in the Asia. And so he puts on this really ponderously yet full of grandeur music the silk road uh, suite and he puts that on and then he turns on the lights and on the back wall was the painting his magnum opus he called it millennium and it's three panels each one I, I forget the dimensions but i think each one was nine feet long and about six and a half feet tall took up the entire back wall of the basement and he had it in kind of a, a panorama so the outer panels were tilted towards us and the, set, the sides were just all seething ocean, massive waves uh, with with un, uh, mysterious lights flashing, you know, here and there throughout the thing. And then the center of it, the, the waves get calmer and calmer. And the center is just this peaceful pathway through the sea with the sun shining on the sea is like a pathway inviting you in. And in more lights and stuff, kind of like what you might imagine UFOs would be if they were painted in oils on on. A, mm. On a, on a panel and with the music and the way he brought the lights up and we're standing in front of this thing. It's like the whole universe opened up Yeah. and I'm looking at it and I'm saying, that's the kind of art I've always wanted to do. And I had no idea anybody was doing it. And then I said, what do you call this style? Lingo? what is this? He said, this cosmic art. And I go, <laughs> yes, that's what I want to do. Cosmic yeah. art.
1: So. Oh, that's amazing uh, you know and, and it makes me wonder that that feeling that you experience there that that seems like it's um, I don't know I, I've had experiences similar I think maybe and it's it's almost like a euphoria or it's a state of revelation but also like sort of a you're moved right and some of the the best pieces of art that are out there can can take us to that place I wonder since you've experienced you know different states of consciousness in particular, you know, sort of the process of of controlled remote viewing. Was there any comparison to that feeling that you had at that moment of awe and states that you've gotten to through processes like CRV?
2: Uh no. And I say that with some reservation and hesitation because I don't want to discourage people from remote viewing.
3: Yeah.
2: But it's an altered state that kind of transcend that kind of feeling. You know, mm. it goes beyond that. You're not full of, you're you're conscious, but not, you know, and um and you have to be in a position where it, it's very Zen. It's very Zen. And you know, in Zen you have to This is C R
1: V you're talking about.
2: Yeah I'm talking about Describe CRV. It. Well real remote viewing, any kind of remote viewing actually yep. requires this. But CRV certainly is a Zen like thing. Um in in Zen you have to kind of transcend your own ego and your own emotions to really get where you need to go in it right the the, the uh, meditative state that zen encourages and and that's kind of what you have to do in remote viewing you have those feelings it depends but really you're so absorbed with the target that your feelings are replaced by feelings that may be present with the target right yeah. so you encounter people there they have their own feelings emotions and thoughts and, and motivations and all that stuff and and you have to kind of set yours aside so you can be a full, pure receiver of that information, of that experience, so you can record it and pass it on to whoever needs the information you're trying to capture. Uh, Talking, of course, now in an operational, uh, practical applications case. Um, But, frankly, where the feelings you just described came in was actually in the contemplating of doing it, Hmm. in the thinking about doing it, and sometimes in the aftermath, you you react to some of the stuff you experience so um i'll give you a kind of a sort of a negative example but it's it is unfortunate negative one sense but it is i don't know how it is empowering Not that's not the word i'm looking for Uh, whatever i'll tell you so one of the targets they had me do was an accident in a soviet bio uh, biochem warfare lab uh and I come into this, lab. I wasn't the only one that worked this, but I, I had this specific experience. I come into it, identify there's something in the air that is causing people to die, and it's really nasty, you don't want to be there. And then I come across this guy, and I, at, at a certain point, I kind of, um, oh, God, I just don't have the words for this, right? It's mm. kind of like I kind of was in harmony with how he was feeling, right? Uh it in a deeper way is empathy, but deeper than empathy. And you get this remote viewing. It's your experience, what we call EI or emotional impact from the target, right? This guy was in the process of actually choking to death and he knew it and I knew it and I knew he knew it. And those are three different things that come together, make it even worse, right? Yeah, right. Um, so I'm experiencing this along with him, certainly not as profoundly as he was, obviously, but but I'm experiencing, I'm, I'm recognizing what he's feeling. And that in itself caused me to feel similar things to what he was feeling. And and it was very, I sort of understand it to say it was very uncomfortable. It was unsettling, it was disturbing. Um, but there are ways to deal with this. They recognize that when you get into some of these, in these scenarios, some of these environments, uh, you can have some close-on-to-traumatic kind of experiences. And so uh, you know, learn how to deal with it, and I dealt with it, and I got over it. But after the fact that I think about it, I don't know if I, it was right then, but today when I think about it, I realize the fact that you can do that, you have that experience, and I, the reason I think it really was true is because I had no idea it was an accident in a biochem lab. I had no idea people were dying. Yet all that was confirmed afterwards, right? It's all confirmed. So that makes me think that my experience was veridical. Okay, hmm. and so the fact that you can do that, you can have that experience uh, in a non-local way. In other words, that was years in the past, and it was thousands of miles away, and yet I tuned into that to use a, a kind of a stupid term, but tuned mm. into that. Um it is profound. Even though it was a semi-traumatic experience for me, it was profound and in a way empowering because you start to think if I can do that, what is what are humans capable of doing ultimately?
1: Yeah. And that must be a a question that follows you, right? And and one that have you I assume has probably led you down multiple paths to, to, to find what that potential is. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I th- I think what it's done is kind of give me a cause. <laughs> right? mm. It's a sort of a vague cause. My, my goal with everything I do is really to, to enable people uh, to recognize that they do have this capability and it's up to them to develop it. You know, I, and I give them opportunities in my training program. You know, I uh, obviously I do it to make money, to support, my agendas, right? Uh, I would have made a whole lot more money if I'd been in the intelligence world after I retired from the army and, and got a job with one of the letter agencies. But sure. I didn't want to do that. This was something. This is this is both a a uh, a way of supporting sustaining my my needs, but probably more so, uh, um, you know, just change helping change the world. You know, yeah. it's a cause. It's become a cause to me, and uh, and so. I oftentimes hear skeptics say, well, there's no evidence. And I, I come on down on them like a like, like the load of bricks because they do <laughs> not know, do not know what they're talking about. Yeah. There's a ton of evidence. And then the ones that admit that there is evidence, well, there is evidence, but it's it's fraudulently obtained or it's flawed or whatever. i so, say, baloney, you still don't know what you're talking about because... In the actual research for ESP, I'm sort of off on a tangent here. but That's okay. Go roll with it. In the research for ESP, we've had decades of research, and every new generation of of legitimate parapsychologists, of scientific parapsychologists, knows what the arguments are against it. They know what the complaints are. They know what the criticisms are of, of research in the past, and it increasingly gets better and better and better. To the to the effect that some of the skeptics have even admitted that some of the science being done in the parapsychology world is better than most science being done outside of it because we have had to confront these issues with the skeptics and come up with improve the, the protocols improve the research approach improve the the uh well been much more careful with how we're doing things and the effects are still there that's what the skeptics cannot come to terms with because no matter how much better we make the protocols, the effects still occur. (laughs) So anyway, sorry, I'm on a soapbox. Oh, that's okay.
1: No. And it, it, it completely (laughs) makes sense. And I think after, you know, all that you've told us so far tonight and for what people know that are listening to this already about remote viewing and, um, you know higher states of consciousness or or different processes to to allow you to to go into that space and listen frankly psychic ability um you know there there is a uh, <laughs> there is a great deal of work left to be done right but the work that has been done over the last several decades is is massive and 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 wild and you know when a lot of people will experience and this is my experience this is what I'm in my experience i have found experiencers of different types of phenomena, whether that is an an entity, right? An alien entity or or, uh, a non-human intelligence, uh, uh, ghost experience. Um, These other states that people have been forced into or enter uh, during these witness experiences. Uh, A lot of these folks can go back and find the, the, the remote viewing documentation and have something to start to stand on, hmm. to understand what could be happening to them. And I think it's a gateway for a lot of people out there to be able to even enter the idea of you know this being related to consciousness, or you know, hey, I'm not crazy. These are things that occur within the space, and there are people out there that are trying to understand. It. And and oh, it's legitimized because the government spent a bunch of money on it, and there's been programs, right? Yeah. Um, it, has that been your experience? Have, have you had people come to you and say, listen, this has been a gateway for me or a safe harbor? Yes,
2: that actually happens fairly frequently. But and of course, there's there's cautions and caveats to be added here. Uh, just because remote viewing is real doesn't necessarily mean that a particular haunting experience you've, you've heard of was real. Sure, right? sure. And just because uh, there is legitimate evidence for one kind of paranormal effect doesn't mean that that goes across the board. It doesn't justify every belief. Right. Right. But just like in remote viewing, not every remote viewing session works and not every data bit you get in a session is real. It can be your imagination, right? The trick is to be able to sort out psychology from the, from the ontology, if you will. Mm-hmm. Right. What is it that's your imagination? What you, what are you making up in your mind from what you're getting that actually is legitimate, that actually is real data. Um, and, and that's a challenge. And so, From one perspective, that's what I mean by remote viewing being empowering is that um, folks out there who have been maligned or oppressed or felt inferior or whatever, because they've had some kind of experience that to them can only be explained as paranormal. There is, Here we have a smoking gun evidence that at least some of what's going on out there really is paranormal in, in whatever sense we mean that, right? Um, And so that can be empowering for somebody who has the experience doesn't necessarily mean their particular experience is real, but it means it can be right. It's possible that it is Um, because there are people who whose imaginations get carried away and they think they're being psychic or having experiences when they're not. Sure. But at the same time, there are people who are really are having experiences that other people make fun of or dismiss because they don't believe those things are possible. Remote viewing shows that they are possible. So you at least ought to give somebody the benefit of the doubt if they're making a claim, sincerely making a claim and not making something up, right? They're sincerely making a claim about experience that was very real to them because some of these things are real, they at least ought to have a chance to determine whether what they experienced was real or not.
1: Well said, well said, Paul. And we'll leave it at that right now for this uh before we go to a little break here. This is Night Drift. I'm Jim Perry. We'll be right back with more.
0: Drifting deeper into the night, Jim Perry is taking your calls at 425-373-5527 or toll free in Western Washington, 888-298-KKNW-5569. Jim Perry on Alternative Talk, 1150 AM, KKNW, Seattle. Now, here again is Jim.
1: This is Night Drift. I'm Jim Perry. We're back here with remote viewer Paul H. Smith. He's a teacher. He was a participant in CRV and the Stargate program. And we're going kind of deep down a rabbit hole after exploring what this project means, his origin story. And I know that we're going to have to try to uh, twist Paul's arm to come back on and maybe do a, a few more segments with him in the future. Um, but while we're at it, and we've in- introduced certain things in this discussion, Paul, and we've been pretty laser-focused on a couple different things, and let's just go ahead and like round those topics out. So we've talked a little bit about Ingo Swan, and I do realize that we haven't given maybe the listeners uh, quite the, the proper introduction to Ingo, who he was, uh, what he was about. Because from what you've told us so far, people are probably going like, well, this
2: doesn't sound like a military man at all. Like, we're, like what's going on with this guy? Well, okay, before I get there, i got to talk about your rabbit hole. And just always wonder how these rabbits feel about all these people trespassing on their homes. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: No free rides. We're gonna pay for it one day, I'm sure.
2: And I'm sure the rabbits will get their revenge, yeah. Um the bunny apocalypse or something, I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Ingo Swan was really an interesting guy. He was he was born in Telluride, Colorado, and spent his younger years there and ended up in Towilla, Utah, which people in Utah kind of think of it as being out in the tules you know, and, and in fact it was named after the Tulees because it was out in the middle of nowhere. It's actually turned into quite a respectable community these days. But he grew up there, and um, and from there he actually ended up in the army during the Korean War era, and he was in Korea, uh, not during the actual uh, hostilities, but he was a uh, an interesting he had an interesting career there. He actually had um, under the table sort of uh, played a role in stopping perhaps World War Three. I have to tell you this story because. Most people haven't heard it. So he uh, he was the aide to the commanding general of the uh, U.S. forces, Korea. And now let me get the ruler right. I think it was Syngman Rhee, who was the Korean president or dictator, whatever it was at the time. He was married to a, to a uh, Western woman. Uh, I want to say she was from Austria, if I'm not mistaken. I should have studied up on this. But anyway, <laughs> no Ingo problem. was her bridge partner. You know, he he because he could play bridge, the, the general found that out and she was looking for a, a bridge partner. And so he Ingo got to be her bridge partner and when they were playing bridge and stuff and and um and so this is during in 56 during the Hungarian Revolution. And you know we had encouraged the Hungarians to revolt against the Soviets and the Soviets came in and just obliterated them. They were typically vicious as the soviets are uh most people don't realize this but the russians have always been bad neighbors mm. they almost never have been friends to anybody and uh, mm. it's always been what they could get and you know and who they could oppress and i, I apologize to my russian friends because I I, I I there's a lot of individual russians i like but but what's happening in ukraine is just typical of the last several centuries of, of mm. russian involvement in the world and right. anyway sorry so anyway so uh, nobody was going to send troops to Hungary to stand up against the Russians and the Soviets, uh, because obviously that would potentially start World War III. Except Simon Rhee decided he was going to send the North Korean, or the South Korean army to uh, Hungary and help, help the people who were revolting against the, the Soviets. And and the general, uh, I guess he was probably a four star. Uh, the general said, Oh, we can't have this happen. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he said, and but Sigmund Rhee, he was his own guy, right? And he wasn't going to listen to the general. Uh, but the general calls in Swan, Ingo Swan and says, Ingo, uh, you know, Madame Rhee, can you tell her that this is a really bad idea and try and convince her husband not to do it? And he said, "I'll do my best, sir." And he goes and he has a conversation with her and explains what the what the outcome would be if that if if they sent their troops over there to to Hungary, yeah. and um, and she talked to Re and Re backed down and decided not to do it. Uh, and Ingo got a letter of commendation from a four star general. Doesn't spell out exactly what happened because that would have been very uh, obviously very sensitive. Right? Yeah. But if you read it and know the story, you realize that's exactly what the general was talking about in that letter. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, so God. you are you are the first one I I think I've ever told this story to on air. So
1: oh, that's bananas. And it seems like uh, thank you for sharing that story. And yeah, it, it, it hints towards Ingo being a fairly enigmatic individual. Um, it, people liked him right and he was a man about town and an artist in that way correct
2: yeah so ingo was an interesting character i i I don't dare go into too much detail because you're gonna run out of time but um but he uh you know he grew up in the west but he really wanted to be in new york he loved the new york culture and you know the city and all that the shriek of the city in his ears whatever and so he moves to new york and he wants to be an artist but you know being an artist when nobody knows who you are doesn't mean that you start being an artist right off. So he got a day job working as a, uh, a sec- secretary, administrative person or something like that at the UN. And the UN was his day job and he did art at night. And he got in with all the right people. He actually lived around the corner from Andrew Warhol, Andy Warhol and went to uh, uh, Andy Warhol's parties and knew a bunch of people that they knew in common who today are like a who's who of, of that period, right? Um, and uh, he's doing his art and he's doing that. And one of the things he did also is he, when he was growing up in, in, in Telluride, Colorado, as a child, he'd have these out-of-body experiences. And his mom dismissed him, but his grandmother mentored him because she had similar experiences. And so she encouraged him and he had these out-of-body experiences. And he gets to New York and he gets in with the, with the uh, parapsychological research crowd there at the City College of New York and the, the American Society of Psychological Research. Starts doing experiments with them, and he was a smart guy. He was a very smart guy, and he was watch. He was kind of studying how they were doing these experiments, and he's finding all kinds of problems with them. Uh, and there weren't problems that they were cheating or anything like that. There were problems that they weren't being as effective as they could have been in identifying the phenomena. Okay, so then he comes up with this idea for an experimental protocol, um, and I won't go into detail here uh, because it's pretty much the protocol under which remote viewing is supposed to be done. You're supposed to the, the, viewer, the viewer is supposed to be double-blind. Um, you're supposed to have randomized targets, which are kind of common. But they were also done at a distance, which cuts down on the chance of for cheating, right? Hmm. Done at a distance. And they started off with the idea of Inga was going to remote view, which they probably didn't have that term yet. He invented the term probably about that time. But the first experiment probably didn't call it a remote viewing experiment. He's going to remote view the weather in various randomly selected cities around the country, and <laughs> uh, and famously one time he uh, the the city was Tucson, and he remote viewed Tucson and this was before the internet you could not just look up what the weather is in Tucson right <laughs> right, and he predicted he said uh, I, I don't remember exactly but it was raining and cold and blustering. now Tucson. How often in the year is it ever like that? Right. And they called the weather station in Tucson, the National Weather Station, Weather Service. And in fact, his description was exactly right. And so, oh, I think we're on to something. And so from there, they developed a few more uh, additional protocols and and continued to experiment and and refine this process. And ultimately it it resulted in what we call remote viewing today.
1: It's amazing. It's an amazing story. Your story is amazing. I love that you've taken your time tonight to sort of give us the, I don't know, maybe the start of the first chapter of your origin story here with this program and remote viewing. I think that that's about the time we have tonight. But I, I want you to tell us lastly, can you tell us a little bit about where people can go to learn more about remote viewing? And find your work.
2: Sure. Yeah. And of course, I told you about my the remote viewing summit, but yep. but that isn't a, a information rich place. That's just about the event. Probably the best place to start is my website, my official website, which is rviewer.com. That's the letter R in the word viewer for like remote viewer, but rviewer.com. If you go there, uh, if you just want information, you go up on the up on the top, there's a drop-down menu that says RV in depth. There's a whole bunch of information there. And it tells you about my courses and under books and stuff. It tells you my books. Probably the, the best book for you right now, because reading the enemy's mind is is out of physical print. You can still get copies, but it's out of physical print. Is mm. the essential guide to remote viewing. And the I the Essential Guide to Remote Viewing, I wrote that specifically for people who, well, there's three three clientels there. The first one is people who've heard of remote viewing really don't know much about it. They want a place to start that doesn't have all the nonsense and they and the exaggeration and stuff (laughs) you get in the field like this. And so they'll give you a good overview. Also for people in remote viewing who have family or friends that think that they're crazy for being in remote viewing, this will give a very balanced grounded view of what it is that their friend or loved one is involved in. And they'll realize they're not as crazy as I thought they were. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then the final clientele would be uh, the audience, I guess the final audience would be folks who have been, immersed in remote viewing but they have holes in their understanding about different parts of it and this hopefully will plug some of those holes so yeah the essential guide to remote viewing um, and uh, you can find it on amazon or it has its own website if you just search for it um, and maybe uh, well a couple of things if you want to learn it well, I've got so much to tell you, I'm not sure. I have a YouTube channel called Remote Viewing slash Remote Perception. I have a lot of videos there. In fact, if there's a, this is linkable, I'll probably link it there. Uh, I don't sure. know if it'll be on Great. YouTube or not, but uh, maybe that won't work, but whatever. And there, I have a training, uh, DVD training set out there for people who can't come take my training called uh, Remote Perception. and. Uh, and that's available out there. And so, yeah, I, I could go on for a while. I don't want to spam you know, all with all of this.
1: No, it's great. I mean, I think what you've uh, what you've described here is that there's a lot of ways for people to dig in mm-hmm. and, you know, in a lot of different methods. So I, I think that's awesome. Paul, this has been an incredible conversation. Thanks so much for joining us here on Night Drift. I, I, I must have you back.
2: I, I'm always happy as long <laughs> as my schedule allows it. I'm always happy to talk about remote viewing
1: fantastic and you're going to have uh you're definitely going to have some folks coming your way from from this broadcast. So thank you for listening to Night Drift with Jim Perry an Alternative Talk KKNW 1150 AM Seattle and the Ufomat podcast feed. You can hear the show anytime on that podcast feed wherever you listen to them. Go to ufomat.com for more and join us next Sunday. Until then, keep looking up.